Hello and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the Muslim ban, or travel restrictions on Iranians and a few other nations. We also talk about how Trump's maximum pressure on Iran has impacted Iranian-Americans and Iranian students coming to the U.S. And finally, we discuss the targeting and surveillance of Iranians and other Muslim communities in America after September 11th. My guest today is Azadeh Shahshahani, legal and advocacy director at Project South and the former president of the National Lawyers Guild. She has been working for years to protect and defend immigrants and Muslim, Middle Eastern and South Asian communities. Azadeh, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being with us. Let's talk about the Muslim ban or as the Trump administration likes to call it, the travel ban. There have been multiple executive orders. President Trump was talking about it as candidate Trump during his um, election campaign. And it was one of the first, basically, election promises that he fulfilled or tried to fulfill in January 2017. And the opponents basically have been fighting this ban, including yourself, since that time. Give us a little brief history of the travel bans. Right. So, um, yeah, the Muslim ban, as you said, um, was in fact uh, introduced by Trump in January 2017. And then it went through various iterations after uh, multiple challenges were brought uh, in federal courts and were successful. And so, um, you know, at some point, the Trump administration um, added uh, uh, nationals of North Korea and some government officials from Venezuela in an attempt to try to, to show that, you know, this is not targeting Muslims. And that's obviously um, you know, that's obviously bogus, um, you know, even the statements that uh, Trump was making uh, while he was campaigning um, were very clearly uh, Islamophobic and uh, very clearly showed his intent to ban Muslims. And uh, I mean, the chaos that ensued um, once he uh, introduced the Muslim ban in January 2017 was just enormous in terms of uh, individuals on uh, green cards even being held um, at the airport. I mean, I remember um, here in Atlanta, a number of individuals uh, actually from Iran were coming back home after mm-hmm. they had gone uh, abroad for a trip and because of, you know, Trump's decision uh, were prevented from coming back to their lives. You know, they were being held at the airport. And so finally, the Muslim ban was unfortunately upheld by the Supreme Court in a shameful decision. And, you know, of course, we're going to keep fighting. And I am sure that um, the Muslim ban is going to be recognized by a future court as the abhorrent policy that it is and will be struck down. Mm -hmm. As you said, President Trump was talking about this as candidate Trump. And interestingly, back then, his own Republican rivals, the some of the most prominent Republicans, were opposed to it, to this language that he was talking about, basically shutting down um, all Muslims coming to the United States. And we also know that the Democratic candidate right now, Joe Biden, has talked about basically getting rid of the travel ban as soon as he enters office. I believe he even said he's going to do it on day one. 
But we know that there's also been basically these waivers put into place, um, a way for the administration to somehow get through the courts and um, make this seem less cruel as it was. Talk about these waivers and how they work and if it's been successful. Yeah, the waivers are basically a joke. Uh, Members of Congress have attested to that fact. You know, unless there's a lot of publicity around a particular case, um, even a case with, um, you know, a person with dire medical conditions, um, the waiver, unfortunately, is not going to be granted. You know, it's there, uh, again, as, um, you know, as a means by the Trump administration to try to show that, well, you know, there is a way around this, if an individual has a compelling case, but from what uh, various organizations have documented, as I said, um, it's, a, it's a joke. It doesn't, uh, they don't actually uh, work to uh, allow individuals with a uh, medical situation or otherwise to uh, be able to come to the U.S. And talk about the political aspects of this, because this is not just a domestic U.S. issue, as we know. This plays into the biggest U.S.-Iran um, tension or the Trump policy towards Iran and also other countries, basically Muslim countries, the view of the administration on immigration, on Muslim immigrants. How do you see this travel ban basically placed among all of these? Yeah, indeed. I mean, so the Muslim ban is obviously rooted in Islamophobia, in white supremacy. Um, you know, it was expanded uh, earlier this year to several African countries. And so, um, Many now call it the Muslim and African ban. Um, mm-hmm. So again, um, illustrating its white supremacist ru- uh, roots. But also, definitely, you know, the countries that is targeting, so Iran, for example, you know, the only reason could be, you know, the relationships between the governments of um, the U.S. and Iran, and as a result, the people are paying for it. I mean. As an extension of that, you know, we saw how um, the atmosphere earlier this year in um, 2020, as Mm -hmm. um, U.S. aggression has ramped up against Iran with the assassination of Jeroz Soleimani, and that uh, in turn translated to, you know, general atmosphere of hostility and definitely government, U.S. government targeting of Iranian-Americans um, as well mm-hmm. as Iranian students who had already obtained visas and were um, attempting to come to the U.S. to pursue their PhDs, and several of them were turned away. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that also, because we later found out of the CBP directive that was basically alarming people after the assassination of Soleimani as tensions were high of incoming Iranians, and this included the CBP holding Iranian-Americans, American citizens, basically, at some borders, um, including the U.S. border with Canada, and as you said, some students. Tell me of some of your experiences of some of these um, Iranians that you know were held around that time. Right. It's interesting that Custom and Border Protections was earlier basically lying about um, their Mm -hmm. uh, treatment of Iranian-Americans at the U.S.-Canada border. Um, And they were saying that, you know, there was no systematic targeting. And um, thanks to a whistleblower, uh, we were able to see the directive. 
So, mm-hmm. um, you know, once again, this agency um, was caught lying. Um, in terms of treatment of Iranian students, you know, again, these were um, these were Iranians who had already, you know, in some cases sold their houses, um, spent quite a lot of money just trying to get a visa. Um, as a reminder, no U.S. embassy in Iran, so students had to travel to, you know, Dubai, Turkey, um, Armenia in order to try to obtain a visa went through a grueling process over several months and then finally had a visa in hand and were coming to the U.S. to pursue their academic career and their dreams. And the next thing they know, they are targeted, placed in these small rooms, interrogated for hours on end. In some cases, they're chained, handcuffed, um, taken to a detention center, strip searched, um, and I mean, you know, one of the students who um, actually was going to pursue a PhD at the University of Florida and came to the Atlanta airport and was subjected to this treatment, he was taken to an immigration detention center in Georgia. He said, once I entered the cell, my spirit broke, which is, I mean, it's just really painful to think about mm-hmm. um, the experience that these students had. And mm-hmm. the only reason they were targeted to this treatment is because they're Iranian, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that is the only reason. It is absolutely unexcusable. And Perfect. so, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely need for international uh, and UN scrutiny of this um, behavior by the U.S. government. And I want to reiterate that these are, we're talking about students who have gone through security clearances by multiple agencies in the U.S. They have a visa in hand and they, once they enter the U.S., basically fly here. This is the treatment that they've gone through. Um, And you've, I know you've also been working on this for years on the surveillance of Muslim communities, including Iranians here in the U.S. or, you know, various encounters with FBI. Tell us a little bit about your work there and how these communities, including Iranians, are being targeted. Right. So this has been going on for years, for decades, um, you know, since 9-11, if not before. Um, What the FBI does is basically target you know, Muslim Americans, not for any particular suspicion of, you know, any wrongdoing, but just because a person happens to be Muslim, you know, from Iran, um, you know, Palestinian, otherwise, you know, that makes you a suspect. And then the FBI shows up to your um, door, you know, your house, your workplace and says, you know, we just have a few questions. We just want to talk to you. And, you know, oftentimes um, these interviews end up being very long and, you know, the FBI shows up again and again and you ask very intrusive questions, again, with no suspicion of wrongdoing. Um, And so our advice to individuals is do not talk to the FBI unless you have an attorney present. Um, If the FBI shows up to your door, the question to ask is, do you have a warrant? And if not, then you ask them to slide their card underneath the door, and then you tell them that I'm going to contact an attorney, and if my attorney and I decide that we want to talk to you, we'll call you back. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there's definitely a pattern of um, quite you know, intimidating behavior by the FBI. 
So, for example, the weekend before the 2016 elections, um, because of some incident at the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, the FBI decided to target Pakistani Americans and Afghani Americans um, and came to their houses. And this very much could be seen as an attempt at voter intimidation and voter suppression. And what about Iranians who are targeted? I know you're talking about Iranians in the U.S. Some of these are Iranian-Americans. Some are uh, those who still have ties back with Iran. What is it that puts someone, let's say an Iranian or an Iranian-American, on FBI's radar? Is there any logic or pattern behind it? Well, it's the same reason that the Iranian students were subjected to the treatment that I was just talking about. Um, you know, the fact that you're, um, that you're Iranian or Iranian-American or of Iranian descent um, makes you a suspect, not because of anything that you have done, but because mm-hmm. of, you know, potentially your Muslim faith. But broader than that, I think um, just because of the, you know, the geopolitical situation and U.S.-Iran relations, uh, again, it's the people um, and those of Iranian descent who end up paying the price. Mm-hmm. And how are these communities fighting back? I know you were involved in a protest against the Muslim ban when it first started. And I know there are community organizations, including yours, who have been pushing back basically against these discriminatory targeting. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, definitely in terms of providing representation to folks when they're approached uh, by the FBI, we have made it known that my organization, Project South, is available to provide representation to individuals in the U.S. South that are approached by the FBI. And I would encourage people to please contact us or contact another attorney. Do not talk to the FBI on your own. Um, and, um, you know, just uh, legal challenges, you know, advocacy, but also organizing and showing up to protest, you know, is really important. So the weekend that um, the Muslim ban came down, I just remember, um, you know, as an Iranian-American, an extremely painful time, hearing Mm -hmm. about community members held up at the airport, um, receiving dozens upon dozens of messages from, um, you know, various folks worried about, Um, what the future holds, Um, you know, we as a community were being othered all of a sudden Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of our, uh, because of our heritage. Um, And so that Sunday, uh, a friend had organized a protest at the Atlanta airport. Mm -hmm. And I showed up expecting to see, you know, maybe a couple hundred folks, um, you know, activists and uh, maybe some friends and then, I got there and there were thousands of people already mm-hmm. and people just kept coming and coming and coming. And um, to this day, I just look back and remember that moment as one of the most hopeful moments since the elections. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the the experience of seeing everybody there, including my neighbors, my own neighbors showed me that, you know, we're not alone. Um, that, you know, we're part of a larger community that is not going to stand up um, for repression. And so that was a really powerful experience. Mm -hmm. I remember similar scenes here in Washington, thousands of people showing up for protests 
outside the White House, marching towards Congress, and just the level of anger, and as you're saying, support and sympathy. Um, I also want to ask you about a People's Tribunal that you held in your organizing against the Muslim ban. How did you organize that? What was the process and what happened? Tell us a little bit about that. So, uh, you know, when the Supreme Court postponed uh, this, uh, the hearing on the second version of the Muslim ban, we in Atlanta decided that we are going to go ahead with our own tribunal. Um, and so mm-hmm. we held a people's tribunal on the model of the Russell Tribunal, the first Russell tri- uh, the first people's tribunal um, was held in the 1960s. And mm-hmm. um, that tribunal, um, the, the purpose of it was to look at the crimes of the U.S. government in Vietnam, you know, the issues that were not going to come before a U.S. court. Um, and so since then, there have been thousands of tribunal held around the world and, and in the U.S. as well. And so um, we had our own tribunal. We had a jury of community members. We had defense. We had the prosecution. And most importantly, we had directly impacted people, um, you know, people separated from their family members by the Muslim ban, community organizations came and testified and told the jury about their experiences, the, the pain that the Muslim ban had caused. And then the jury came back after um, a couple hours of deliberation with a verdict of guilty against the Muslim ban and against the Trump administration for grave human rights and civil rights violations. And um, even though the Supreme Court about a year later came out uh, with with their judgment upholding the Muslim ban, we in Atlanta still stand by our verdict and um, we will keep fighting until the Muslim ban is struck down. And how does policies like this, like the Muslim ban um, impact these communities here in the U.S. We know there's been a spike in hate crimes against certain communities. How do you see these policies basically from the top um, impacting the behavior of certain groups in the society and the communities that are targets? I mean, for sure, you know, when the rhetoric coming from the top is rooted in white supremacy and uh, xenophobia and Islamophobia, um, you know, that sets the tone. So definitely, um, you know, rising hate crimes and, um, you know, discrimination, state discrimination against um, against uh, impacted communities. Um, and then I think also, um, you know, white supremacist groups feeling more emboldened to target community members, um, not to mention just, you know, the, the, the pain um, for, um, for people affected by the Muslim ban of being separated from their families and not seeing their, you know, grandma and grandpa and, and cousins for years on end. Mm-hmm. And... I know you've received multiple human rights and leadership awards. You just recently received the Martin Luther King Community Service Award from Emory University. And I saw that you wrote that you're looking to the legacy of Dr. King to fight the triple evils of racism, 
economic exploitation and militarism. Talk about that, these triple evils and the connection between them. I know you, this is portrayed in your work a lot, this racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. Right. I mean, very much so. I think, um, you know, these issues fighting back against various systems of oppression is very important for us to see the connections. Um, so, for example, you know, this summer, the massive movement on the streets um, talking about dismantling of the police state, talking about shutting down prisons, you know, really, really inspiring and important movement. Um, and so some folks were talking about, well, you know, the police shouldn't be on the streets in these militarized equipment. Um, definitely not. But is it okay then for the U.S. military to be over there in other countries killing brown and black people with these same militarized equipment? You know, so we should be thinking about that. You know, as, as we're talking about dismantling white supremacy, well, U.S. imperialism and militarism is rooted in white supremacy. So we need to be, you know, talking about and not only talking about fighting to dismantle um, these various um, systems of oppression. And then U.S. militarism, of course, also rooted in capitalism in terms of, you know, these, um, these you know, war companies um, obviously making a whole lot of profit off of waging wars. Um, so I think until we see the connections and work together, um, we're not going to get very far in our movements. Hazreti, you've also served as a trial monitor in Turkey and an international fact-fighting delegation to post-revolutionary Tunisia and Egypt, as well as a delegation focused on the situation of Palestinian political prisoners. Talk about that, of your experience in these post-revolutionary settings and you know, various places in the Middle East. Sure. Um, so, you know, I've definitely been honored to be part of these delegations and as a trial monitor. So in Turkey, for example, I went as a representative of Project South and the National Lawyers Guild because the lawyers in Turkey who are people's lawyers, they called on us for support. Um, you know, lawyers are under attack um, by um, the Turkish government and um, they were in prison. Uh, you know, one of them actually recently died after a prolonged um, hunger strike. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was definitely a need for international observers to be there at the courthouse so that, you know, the Turkish prosecution was on alert that the world is watching. So mm -hmm. I was very honored to be there. And, you know, what I kept thinking about is that, um, you know, that the organization in Turkey that the lawyers are from is a sister organization of the National Lawyers Guild, an organization that I'm a member of. And so, you know, if I was in Turkey doing what I'm doing now, you know, speaking out, um, fighting back against government repression, I would probably also be in prison right now. Um, mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's what kept going through my mind. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, going to post-revolutionary Egypt and Tunisia, again, you know, extremely uh, huge honor to be there to learn about, you know, the experience of folks who had just launched and won a revolution, but also, you know, going with the lens of, you know, as, as a U.S.-based person and a, and a lawyer, going with the lens of, you know, what role did the U.S. government play in supporting the dictatorial regimes of uh, Mubarak and Ben Ali? Um, mm -hmm. And so then coming back to the U.S. and spreading that information and trying to hold the U.S. government accountable 
Because, you yeah. know, I mean, we, as, as an Iranian-American, I'm very familiar with the destructive role that the U.S. government has played in the region in terms of um, the coup in Iran, for example, the 1953 coup um, against Mossadegh toppling mm-hmm. uh, uh, democratically elected prime minister because he wanted to nationalize Iranian oil. So, I mean, that mm-hmm. experience, I think, is with us in our collective memory as Iranians and Iranian-Americans. And so uh, we are very familiar with that history. And so seeing that kind of being replicated across the region and in different parts of the global south. And you also served at, on a delegation focusing on the situation of Palestinian political prisoners. How was that experience? Extremely painful and powerful. Um, so for one thing, I was um, you know, very happy to be there, just um, interacting with uh, former Palestinian political prisoners um, and incarcerated folks and the lawyers who represent them in an extremely, extremely racist system and with the odds, you know, stacked against um, Palestinians. I mean, I think the, the rate of acquittal for Palestinians in this military system is very, very low. I mean, it's important for folks to remember Palestinians in the occupied territories, uh, occupied Palestinian territories, it is military law that governs their fate. Um, and so, you know, for people to be um, expecting any type of a fair process in this system is, is an absolute, um, it's, it's absolutely delusional. But to see that, you know, people were still resisting, fighting back. You know, one, one, one saying was that existence is resistance. And so just um, as a Palestinian, continuing to... Um, to fight back every opportunity that you get, just to have an opportunity to observe that. Um, at the same time as I was extremely disgusted by the apartheid system of Israel. I mean, it, it is one thing to read about it and to talk about it. It is one thing to see it with your own eyes um, and just, you know, the, the institutionalized racism and how it's being implemented, it is absolutely abhorrent. Um, and again, as, as a person uh, based in the U.S., you know, the U.S. government is absolutely complicit in these abuses and, and makes it possible with um, huge amounts of our tax dollars going to support um, the apartheid system of Israel. Now, let's um, talk about you a little bit. I know you studied law in the University of Michigan, and you have been basically fighting for social justice and equality for years as a lawyer and activism, and you are also an Iranian-American. How did you get into law, into this activism, into your work for human rights and social justice? What inspired you, and how did this career path basically get shaped? So um, I actually went to law school with um, the idea of becoming an international human rights lawyer, but um, the concept that I I had about that was to be placed somewhere like Geneva or The Hague. And then after graduation from law school, we ended up in North Carolina because of family circumstances, and I had no connection to the place whatsoever and was a little bit lost um, for, for a little while. But then, you know, this was in 2004, at the height of the post 9-11 crackdown on Muslim communities. And so much to my surprise, I saw a very large Muslim community in North Carolina. So then my next question was, okay, then there's gotta be some type of organization or project 
to help address the legal needs of the community. And there was nothing. So um, I approached the ACLU of North Carolina with the idea for this project to help support communities um, in terms of doing no and defend your rights workshops in various mosques and community centers and putting together a network of lawyers to represent people facing religious discrimination and people being approached by the FBI, people facing naturalization delays and all other types of discrimination. And so when I moved to Georgia a couple years later, I was fortunate to be able to do the same work, um, only broader. Um, I still remember in 2007, the head of the Georgia Latin Alliance for Human Rights approached um, us, I was at the ACLU of Georgia at the time, and said, you know, because of, an, because of an agreement that Immigration and Customs Enforcement had put into place with the um, local police agency, she said, you know, our people are, be, are being disappeared off the streets and they're being taken to the jail in these really horrible conditions. Um, and so that prompted me to really broaden my lens. And so I've been really fortunate to work with and work to defend and protect immigrants and Muslim and South Asian and Middle Eastern communities um, since then. And now with Project South, uh, we work in Georgia, but also um, the U.S. South, and have also been very fortunate to work with um, folks in the in the global South. Azadeh, on that note, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you very much for having me. That was Azadeh Shahshahani, an Iranian-American lawyer and human rights activist. She is the legal and advocacy director at Project South and the former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Iran Podcast on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.